Good morning, everyone. Our first reading is Ezekiel, chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. <clears throat> I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. And there they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Lord, Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. 
See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nation. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. And now we go over to Matthew, chapter 14. Starting at verse 13, Jesus has just been told by his disciples that John the Baptist has been beheaded. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You can give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Jesus said, Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, where he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
Later that night, he was alone there, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Well, come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Thanks, Megan. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a hot, muggy day. Let me pray, especially for uh, God's help in concentrating on uh, uh, this part of his word as we uh, resume our long series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word for our good. Please help us, uh, particularly on a, a rather human morning, to, uh, to concentrate, to set aside hindrances and distractions that we would tremble at and rejoice at your word and be uh, made more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ on account of having read it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. For these Jewish disciples who worshipped God alone, this was an extraordinary event, a climax throughout the Gospel of Matthew, especially when you remember that later on in the Gospel, we're going to have a non-Jew also exclaim that truly this was the Son of God. And for us, as the saved people of God, this is our experience. We are those who confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ, i.e. the Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord, and who therefore continually offer up our whole selves as a living sacrifice, which is now the true meaning of worship. We are worshippers of the Son of God, like the people in that boat. But what does it actually mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God. In a bygone era, that's how people identified themselves as Christians. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? And just as importantly, what is it that rightly compels us to worship Jesus as the Son of God? Well, the Gospel writer Matthew wants us to be very clear on these absolutely fundamental tenets of the faith what it means to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, that is the Son of God, and why it is fitting to worship him as Christ. And to get us there, Matthew does this awesome thing. He gives us this huge contrast between the rule of Herod and the rule of Jesus. Now, we learned about the rule of Herod just a little 10 months ago on the last time we were in uh, Matthew, uh, at the first half of chapter 14. So, I'm going to give us a super quick refresher on the first half 
of uh, this chapter that we looked at 10 months ago. Herod Antipas, there's a lot of Herod, so you've got to call them their other name, right? Herod Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. He was not even a favoured son to become the heir, but he nonetheless found himself as the heir because his uh, brothers killed one another. And Herod Antipas liked to think of himself as a king, whereas in reality he was what's called a tetrarch, which literally translates ruler of a quarter, and he's put in there uh, strategically by the Romans. Like most power-hungry people with great insecurities, he was a major bully. He'd taken his own brother's wife, whose name also sounds like Herod, Herodias, just to make things really confusing, while that brother was still alive, hence he was an adulterer, and when John the Baptist came to confront him about that, which any good Jewish prophet would do, confront the king for being immoral, well, he just chucked him in prison, because that's what a bully who's insecure would do. Then, at one of his lavish banquets, Herod's stepdaughter, which I believe is probably his niece as well, gave an <clears throat> entertaining dance that pleased him and the guests so much that he promised her a reward of whatever she wanted up to half his kingdom, I mean Tetrarch. Prompted by her evil and adulterous mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm going to assume that most of us probably have heard this story. We know about the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod didn't want to behead John, but his desire to save face in front of his guests was far greater than his desire to follow his God-given conscience, so he murdered the last and greatest Old Testament prophet. And had his head brought in on a nice plate, a disgusting and bloody display of worldly so-called power and might. When this Herod, Herod Antipas, started hearing about Jesus, he entertained the notion, we're told, that Jesus could somehow perhaps be the embodiment of John's ghost. Thus, he added pagan superstition to all his evils and corruptions. So that's Herod Antipas. Power-hungry, morally corrupt, bully, adulterer, murderer who puts himself in the limelight. And with that background, we come to the second half of Matthew chapter 14, in which we're, we're resuming our series, and it's our passage for today. And it begins verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, when he'd heard about all this stuff with Herod and John the Baptist, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And Jesus knew that John the Baptist was the forerunner, the warm-up act, the voice of one crying out to make ready the paths for the Lord. And so Jesus knew that now that John had a gruesome murderer at the, at the hands of sinful worldly powers, well, that that was there for a foreshadowing of what was very soon to befall Jesus. And in Jesus' case, it will be worse than the fate of John the Baptist. So understandably, Jesus would have felt the great weight of his soon-to-be death, the kind of thing that made him want to withdraw to a solitary place, presumably to be alone and speak and ask for help from his heavenly Father. And now I know that when something is really weighing heavily on me, that's what I want to do. I, I don't want to be around people. I want to withdraw 
and hope that things get sorted so I can at least feel marginally better and ready to, to face the day. But when Jesus, whose burden is significantly bigger than any of us will ever know, when that Jesus saw the needy crowd before him, despite his great desire to have time to himself, he instead met their needs. And he didn't do it reluctantly. It says he had compassion on them. And the word used here is a very intense adjective of longing and care. Jesus was longing to meet the needs of this crowd and address those needs above his own. He would sacrifice self-interest for the sake of others. The polar opposite of Herod, who would sacrifice others for the sake of his own self-interest. So that's Jesus' attitude compared to that of Herod. But what about Jesus' power? What about his authority? Well, Herod wanted to make himself out to be a king, even though he was merely a tetrarch. Jesus makes himself out to be a lowly servant when his power is actually at the level of, well, let's see. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away you give them something to eat. Now that is an absolutely outrageous command. Knowing there's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people and almost no food, Jesus commands his attendants to feed the lot of them. The disciples, just like you and I would, point out the sheer preposterousness of such a command. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And I couldn't help myself with that little thing. But as is always the case, Jesus proves his authority to give such a command. Verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people, notice he's calling the shots, he directed the people to sit on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And we're not told about the mechanics of this. Like, is it like the packet of Tim Tams where you take one and another one? I don't know, but that's not the point. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So Jesus was right. The crowd did not need to leave. And it was reasonable for him to issue the command that his servants would feed this entire crowd. Now, in this event, you can't not think of the ancient Israelites, can you? In the wilderness, being fed uh, by God with a manna from heaven and yet under the human leadership of Moses. Twelve leftover baskets alludes to the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're also right to remember that Jesus, in his compassion on the crowds, now interestingly seated on the grass, sounds like the shepherd who is somehow also the Lord in Ezekiel 34, which we had read out for us. He's... he's the, the one who rejects all the other shepherds because they're useless and he is the shepherd and yet it's the servant David, he's the Lord and, and, and he's the servant. He's like God and he's like Moses feeding, he's like Yahweh and he's like David. 
In both these cases, you've got this weird mixture of supernatural power and authority of God alone, yet exercised through a lowly and faithful human servant. Is Jesus the lowly servant who places the needs of others above his own? Well, yes, he is. And yet at the very point of doing so, does he exercise the supernatural and inexplicable power of God Almighty? The answer is also Yes, he does. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he can rightly give the command to distribute some kids' lunch to thousands of people and expect an abundance of leftovers. By his ridiculous command, he's showing that he's what you might call the God-man shepherd, the highest of authorities doing the most selfless of services. And this is actually a big theme throughout the gospel. By the way, it's the thing that Satan gets wrong. You remember in his tempting of Jesus all the way back, chapter 4, that the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness, right? The first thing the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. You see, Satan knew that the true son of God would have all the power and authority of Yahweh himself. And could therefore command these stones to become bread. And Jesus could have successfully made such a command. But given that it was to suit his own needs, his own very real hunger, rather than to suit the needs of others, it, it, such a command would have been self-serving rather than done in the humble and sacrificial service of others. So Jesus rejects Satan by quoting the words of the servant of God, namely Moses, who says, man does not live on bread alone, but every mouth that proceeds from the word of the Lord. Sorry, from the mouth of God. But back to these uh, loaves and fish here. It so happens that the Apostle Peter, and this is a good moment for Peter, there's not that many, there's a good moment. The Apostle Peter started to see, he starts to cotton on, he starts to see that Jesus issuing such a ridiculous command was a way of revealing both his divine authority yet also his servant-like lowliness, the two qualities that the Jews might have come to expect of the long-awaited Messiah. And so Peter looks for an opportunity to see Jesus issue another outrageous command that might confirm his identity, yes, as both somehow the Lord and yet the shepherd, the Son of Man who is yet the suffering servant. And Peter didn't have to wait too long for that to happen. It happens in the next section. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So finally, Jesus gets some of that me time to process the murder of John the Baptist and the burden it placed on him and his own very real mortality. But yet again, his plans, humanly speaking, are at least partially foiled by the needs of others. Continuing in verse 23, later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Uh, now, friends, it's significant to note that in the original language, the phrase there, it is I, can translate literally, I am, which happens to be the literal name of God in Hebrew, Yahweh, I am. Take courage, I am. Herod, in a manner of speaking, thought of Jesus as a ghost, and in response, Jesus showed himself to be the lowly shepherd who yet had all the power and authority of Yahweh. Now here his disciples think he's a ghost. And so again, like Moses praying on the mountain, and yet like Yahweh who tramples the sea, Jesus will show himself to be the fully divine yet fully human Messiah. Peter picks up that this is happening. He picks up on what Jesus is doing. And so just as it was with the loaves and the fish, he asks Jesus to give a ridiculous command that would show, that would show to him that he's not just the faithful servant of the Lord, but also the divine Lord. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, this is different from Satan saying, if you're the son of God, make the bread become so. Lord, if it's you, I'm going to actually put myself on the line. I, I'm not doing it to to you know, go be against you. I'm doing it because I want to be for you. People that want signs by Jesus just to sort of be against him, Jesus rejects them in the Gospels. This is a, re this is a good request. Give me that command. And so, of course, Jesus agrees to Peter's well-thought-out request. And it's one simple word, verse 29, come. It's like Peter saying, Lord... You commanded us to feed thousands using a few loaves and fish and like only God could, you proved that that was a legit thing to do. Now that you're walking on water during a storm, do it again so that I might believe. Give me a command that only God could give even though you're certainly a man. Jesus was therefore only too happy to oblige and again his command was shown to be legitimate. Continuing in verse 25, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Peter was therefore at the point where he could recognise Jesus as both the humble servant and yet the all-powerful Lord. The expectations for Israel's Christ ran along both those trajectories. So it must be the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what did that son of God come to do? Well, verse 30, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Which is, of course, exactly what the Christ came to do. And it's also exactly what you and I need. As Peter discovered that day, you can have all the evidence in the world that Jesus is the divine Lord of heaven and earth who has come down as the humble shepherd. And even then struggle with what we might call reasonable ongoing human doubts even our faith our belief our trust even that is tainted by our sinful rebellion against what God has plainly revealed to be true but that's why it's absolutely wonderful that the thing this son of God came to do was to save us from our sin to save us from our sin that results in certain death and judgment in the chaos that so easily envelops us, but that God alone can just walk over and even grant that saved sinners can walk over with him. 
the Son of Man, who turned out to be also the lowly Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve and to do what was necessary to save sinners. And so verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. It's almost certain that what Jesus says here, by the way, is not some stern rebuke, but almost a longing, really, for Peter to embrace what he has already worked out to be true. It's like Jesus is saying, mate, you're already there. Come on. You can totally trust that I am who you think I am. And that's basically what happened next with the disciples at the climax of this particular part of Matthew's Gospel, verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You've got to remember the last time they were in a boat, when there was a big storm, they ended up asking the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, now... They know the answer, truly you are the Son of God, that is the Christ, the one who is somehow both a servant of the Lord and yet who exercises the power and authority that only Yahweh God himself is capable of exercising. Hence, they worship Jesus as the Christ. And that, by the way, is actually what it means to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. You see, as the Son of God, or as we shorten it, as the Christ, Jesus has all the power and authority of Yahweh Almighty, and yet he exercises his power as a humble servant of others. That's what we're saying when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To be not just a Christ, but the Christ, Jesus had to have all the glory of Yahweh And Yahweh will not share his glory with another. Yet he had to have all the lowliness of the despised and rejected servant of the Lord who would sacrificially meet the needs of God's chosen people. When we acknowledge Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, that's what we're actually doing and saying. And of course, it makes sense that we therefore worship him as God alone. You'd be an absolute fool not to worship this king because he is the most powerful person in the universe being God and he has chosen to use his power to lay down his life in order to pay the eternal penalty for your sin and for mine. It may be the case that you're a little bit like Peter, you kind of know this is true and yet you find it hard to kind of commit. Uh, Don't or you'll sink. Herod, not to mention any other human ruler, has nowhere near such power and nowhere near such servant-heartedness. You and I have nowhere near such power and nowhere near such servant-heartedness. We are far worse masters over ourselves than what Jesus will ever be over us. Self-rule is either somewhere between a deception and a torture. If you're the boss of your own life, You might think that that's fantastic and wonderful, but it's somewhere between deception and torture. But when you come under Jesus' rule, when you acknowledge him as the Christ who is to be worshipped, you find that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. 
You feel like you're walking on water. And so if you, by the way, are someone who prior to now hasn't understood what it means to acknowledge as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what good reason could you possibly still have for refusing, even right now, to repent and place yourself under his infinitely powerful and yet infinitely loving rule? See, whether you realise it or not, absolutely everyone, without exception, everyone is mastered by someone or something. The false god of self-determinism, of being a good moral upstanding citizen, the false god of financial security, which does not exist, the false god of materialism, which is its cousin, the false god of pleasure or the minimisation of pain, which is unrealistic in a fallen world, the false god of your own autonomy, which, like I said, is basically somewhere between a delusion and torture. Every single person is enslaved to something. Everyone has something that masters them. One of the worst masters you can have is yourself, by the way. Every person has an ultimate master that they serve. And there is no other person in the history of the world so infinitely powerful and yet so infinitely kind and compassionate that you could ever possibly know. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Make the only sane choice, the choice that the disciples here made, become a worshipper of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the call of the gospel and the result is eternal life. Now, if you're not sure whether or not you've done that, it might help to remember that one of the big evidences that you are a worshipper of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that you remain a 24-7 worshipper of the Son of God. Uh, it's not hard for people to fall into the trap of what we might call being Sunday Christians, people who are unashamed to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ when like-minded people are, are there or, you know, when it seems fit, but in other contexts who revert to living their own lives their own way without regard for the loving lordship of God's Son. We certainly don't make it any easier on ourselves when we keep referring to the activity of gathered Christians as worship or even worse, congregational singing as worship when the whole point of worship in Romans 12 is an all-of-life thing, right? It's 24-7. But no matter how many times we fail, which all of us will, our heart's desire will be, if we are his, to keep coming back to living under Jesus' rule rather than our own, to keep repenting of sin and growing in righteousness. If you're worried about falling into the trap of being a Sunday Christian or if your conscience feels really pricked by that notion and you've got some guilt going on, then praise God. It's a wonderful sign that you genuinely care about living under the Lordship of Jesus. If you don't care and you think you might be a Sunday Christian, it's time to repent. It's time to look afresh at whether or not you believe this man has all the authority of God and all the profound and infinite love of the servant of God and choose to make him your Christ and worship him. Finally, if we worship him as the Son of God, which I suspect most of us do, then we'll want to grow to become more like him. Here we see that the one with all the power and authority of Yahweh would yet choose to put others first when it was personally costly. And yes, he commands us to go and do likewise. Uh, we're commanded to serve others, especially those of the household of God. 
And to do so when it's really easy, doesn't really count for that much. To do so when it's costly is what makes for real discipleship. Jesus taught in the best sermon ever preached, by the way, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't, don't even the pagans do that? No, says Jesus, you've got to love and serve when it is costly to do so. Now, I recognise, and I want to tread very carefully here, that such a notion, whilst absolutely right, can very easily be twisted and distorted for Christians to sinfully exercise power in an abusive way over others. The Bible says you ought to be a servant even when it hurts, so serve me. That is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus had the right to be with his heavenly Father, but he chose to serve. It's when you've got... If the choice is removed, it's no longer real service, it's just servitude, you know, it's someone being abusive. But with that very, very, very important caveat, yeah, we've got to be followers of Jesus who serve when it is costly, when I really don't feel like facing up to the people because I've got this big, read, probably small, issue weighing on my mind that prevents me from doing what really the Lord would have me doing. Our kids and youth ministry, have you heard, are kicking off this Friday, Thrive, Friday night, youth, Sunday week, uh, a a youth uh, growth group. One of the great joys and delights I have as being the one who, as part of my job, oversees uh, the the ministry of our youth, is that you can tell, and, and this is, I've said this before, I'll say it again, you can tell when the Spirit of God is really at work in someone uh, more easily with young people than with a lot of others because their kind of life is in this sort of, you know, fast, hard and fast flux of up and down such that when they make a decision that clearly goes against the grain of most of their peers but clearly honours Christ, you can go, yeah, this person's getting it. You know, I'm not going to work that job because they keep getting me to work on a Friday night at youth or Sunday or whatever. That hurts. And that's what I look for. I look for, if you're a youth, block your ears, you pretend you don't hear. I look for, over time, people that make decisions that hurt, but only make sense on the basis of a desire to be obedient to the Lord who they want to imitate, uh, that is Jesus. Um, by the way, speaking of our, our kids and youth ministry, if um, uh, I'm going to ask a, a question that's going to, going to, set the cat among the pigeons but it's it's really worth thinking about it's a parent question that's why it's dangerous but if your kid says I don't want to go to school do you say well that's fine you don't have to go to school then but they say I don't want to go to youth group oh well that's fine you don't have to go to if you wouldn't say it for school and you would say it for youth or you would say it for thrive what message are you communicating to your kids about the importance of their discipleship versus their worldliness and education Did he really say that? Yes, I'm just going to leave that hanging. (laughs) What is something that will cost you, something that will require sacrifice in order to love and serve others, just like Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to love and serve us? That is a right question that I can't answer for individuals, but it's a right question as followers of Jesus we ought to be constantly asking. You might think it's burdensome, but in the end it actually brings reward from our Heavenly Father, which is far more satisfying than anything else this fallen world could afford us. It is so satisfying to be a worshipper 
of the Son of God who reaches out in order to save us always and in our times of need. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly the Son of God, who has all the power and authority of God alone, and yet all the profound and unworldly humility and love and compassion of the great servant, the great shepherd of God. And we thank you, Father, that we, like the disciples, have come to recognise him as our Christ's. We've come to recognise him as our Saviour. We've come to recognise him as the Lord who we can delight to worship 24-7. Father, we pray that like him, we continually be moulded into people who make costly decisions, costly decisions to love and serve others over and above our own needs, just as he did. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.